Since I lost her smile And the painter's hand The trembling now Welcome back. Once again, Radio Free Acton is uh, back on the air. Kind of, if you're on a wireless network, I suppose we could say it's on the air. Won't get technical about that right now. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Glad to have you along. I'm your usual host for the Acton Institute's podcast. But uh, if you'll recall, last time around, we had part one of a podcast uh, on the Christian stewardship of art. And I had turned the microphone over to David Michael Phelps, a friend of the Acton Institute, to moderate that debate. Uh, and I'm going to do the same today to refresh your memory. The participants in the conversation are Professors Nathan Jacobs and Calvin Seerveld, both of whom uh, engaged in a controversy in the uh, or in a recent issue of the Journal of Markets and Morality. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Journal of Markets and Morality, you can find more information online at uh, Acton.org, of course. And uh, the question uh, being addressed. What is the proper way for Christians to be stewards of art? It involves a whole bunch of different issues. What is art? Is, uh, is there a responsibility for Christians to do art in a certain way, or is it anything goes? If you haven't heard part one, I'd encourage you to give that a listen. Check out the links associated with that podcast and its uh, post on the Acton Power blog. We'll have a link to that in the post associated with this part of the podcast as well. Be sure to read some of those background articles. And uh, give that first part a listen if you haven't. If you have already, now's the time for me to step aside. I'm going to pass the microphone back to David Michael Phelps, and he's going to continue uh, moderating our discussion on the proper Christian stewardship of art. One of the things, of Professor Sirvel, that interested me about your article was... Uh, you seemed, now I'm not sure if I have this right, but you seemed to sort of deny um, that there's such a thing as noble beauty. Did I read that correctly? Uh, it's a good question. What I would want to do is say that uh, the beautiful is a minor elemental element present in all bona fide art, but it should not be capitalized as Plato and as many Christian scholastic and patristic thinkers have done too, to say as if it's some kind of an intellective real. I, I boggle at that. Which to me, the beautiful means that there's some kind of consonance and harmonic elemental character to a song or to an artwork or to whatever. But beauty for me is not, as I wrote about it in the article, you know, a kind of the penultimate step to meet the holy. I don't think that's uh, scriptural. I think that Eugene Peterson says somewhere, you know, beautiful is not really a word in the Bible. I mean, it's true, usually when it's talked about the glory of creation and the glory of God, this is translated beauty. But then it's something quite different than what philosophically uh, beauty has come to mean. So I don't know whether that answers your question still. Well, uh, it, it does, actually. And um, let, me, let me sort of... Uh, sorry, one more thing I should need to Go say is, is that... You know, ugly art can indeed meet the objective quality of being metaphoric. And it can be indeed redeemed by a spirit, as in Grunewald and many paintings of the crucifixion are, which are not pleasant to look at, which are not lovely, which are not beautiful, but are grotesque. And to me, it was very important, both in the history of art, that it was the Christians, indeed, who opened up things to be grotesque. I mean... Uh, uh, Professor Jacobs, he will talk about, you know, gargoyles, which nobody came to see. These are wonderful creatures. Uh, so that the whole idea of that which is not beautiful 
whether it's a tragedy of Shakespeare, you know, or, or whatever, can have indeed a normative character as artwork and be stewardly, uh, have, have the stewardship, so to speak, uh, coefficient to really impress people in a deep way, deeper than if it's a lovely landscape. This, uh, this question of beauty I, I find to be a real linchpin in discussions of art and imagination because uh, I, I find that when people use this term, uh, oftentimes there's disagreement because they mean different things by it. Now, Professor right. Jacobs, I don't know if you're familiar um, with David Bentley Hart's book, The Beauty of the Infinite. He has this wonderful passage, not about what beauty is, but why we can't just get away with it. He says, the modern disenchantment with the beautiful as a concept reflects in part a sense that while beauty is something whose event can be remarked upon, and in a way that seems to convey a meaning, the word beauty indicates nothing, neither exactly a quality, nor a property, nor a function, not even really a subjective reaction to an object of occurrence. It offers no phenomenological purchase upon aesthetic experience. And yet, nothing else impresses itself upon our attention with at once so wonderful a power and so evocative an immediacy. Beauty is there, abroad in the order of things, given again and again in a way that defies description and denial with equal impertinence. Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's where Hart takes a lot of his cues from, I think, in this book, begins his great theological work with beauty. Um, in the Eastern tradition, the, the, the philokalia, right? The beauty is the beginning of the love of God or something along those lines. I'm not Eastern, so I can't quote that right. But it seems to me that beauty is an important concept, whether or not it uh, exists or it is a real, uh, an intellectual real. Can you have a crack at, at what, what is beauty? And does it have anything to do with, uh, of importance to do with the stewardship of art? Um, so you, let me let me make sure I have the question right. You want me to define what Bentley Hart has just identified as the undefinable? Is that that, right? that is exactly what I'm, I'm asking you to. Now he had now he had 400 pages to explain right. why it wasn't. You have you know two minutes. Right. Um, well, I, I I think I've I, I think I've just arrived at you know this undefinable. I think you you've you've painted me into a corner here. Um, I I find that there are, there are a variety of of approaches, I mean, the way Plato would approach it is quite different than, say, the way Kant would approach it. Um, Kant, in some way, leaks it with teleolo teleology, um, and yet uh, I think all the definitions also have this link with the immediacy of it, with the transcendence of it, and yet this this uh, immediacy in the moment. Um, but then it's also oftentimes linked back then with God Himself, um, and so. No, I can't. I can't uh, do the the impossible here and give you the the proper definition of beauty, um, except to identify some of the things that are traditionally associated with it, as far as immediacy, teleology, meaning, and God, and the mm -hmm. transcendent. Very good. One of the things I, I find interesting, and um, I think there's a, a growth of interest in study, at least in English, with Balthazar and his idea of beauty as the opening up, the revelation. Of the uh, of the nature of a thing, and this takes its uh, highest um, form in uh, in the incarnation. Um, this idea that the form of the eternal God is revealed uh, eternally 
uh, and defini- uh, is, is, is revealed definitively in the Incarnation. And once God has taken form in a definitive way, we have a standard uh, by which we can uh, measure all other forms. Um, and because this form in the Incarnation uh, ended up on the cross, or, or disformation, as he says, Balthazar tells us how far uh, the beauty of God can go. Uh, Professor Seervelt, uh, before we wind down here, I wonder if you might have something to say to that. Is uh, you, you speak of uh, you know a community coming together to um, take a look at what is and is not meeting the creational ordinance of art, but is 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 there no um, sort of we'll say objective aesthetic standard? If not in the nature of God, then then in the ordinance of God or or in the scriptures, is is there something that we can know to be some sort of standard? Well, yes, I think the the standard which, you know, I would work with is indeed this business of metaphoricity, if you will, or what I call in jargon, you know, the simulation of strange things, where you show indeed how things which don't seem to go together subtly really can enlarge our understanding of what's there by thinking them, seeing them, imagining them together. So that for me, the, the objective creational ordinance, while not beauty, since I think so much art is not defined by its beautiful character of consonants, uh, startling, pleasing, uh, harm- harmony, uh, the idea of uh, subtlety, allusivity, metaphoricality, if you will, that this is an objective norm which, if not met creationally by those who are trying to make art, then their art-making has failed from that. But it doesn't need to be uh, uh, dominated by the idea of uh, loveliness and pleasantness as indeed uh, a hint of what God is. I think the idea of, uh, of God as, well, usually it's been priced as being beauty, becoming um, in, in incarnate, dying on the cross, then as I understand when people talk about what's beautiful, it's kind of lost any kind of uh, defining meaning. I mean, André Breton would talk about uh, la beauté uh, uh, convulsée, so you can have convulsive ideas of beauty. Uh, I mean, for a long time I struggled with this, so that uh, it's it's really... I've, I've read Vogel, you know, who in three volumes on tragedy will talk about, you know, when everything, all you've got are corpses left on the stage, it's beautiful. I don't understand that kind of uh, use of the, of the terminology. Well, if you so were to... Why, I'm sorry, if you were to... Yeah, um, no, please. I, um, I, I resonate very much with you because for a long time this was something, and it remains even in my own work, something elusive, but... Right. Let's say if we were to jettison the definition of beauty as something like consonance or harmony or clarity or some of these classical yeah. formations, and if yeah. we were to define beauty as the revelation, uh, the, the the self-gift of the nature of things, something revealing itself uh, to us, so to speak, as, like you say, to someone who's you know giving an informed, an informed view, right. um, something... Then, to my mind, something like beauty defined in that way, Hamlet can become beautiful, even if it is grotesque or even what we might define as as ugly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, well, I mean, the fact that things are disclosed in their um, haplessness or in their struggle to indeed be human, as you would find with Hamlet, uh, I, 
I don't want to call that beautiful, but that to me is indeed an important way in which artwork done by an artist fulfills the creational norm of bringing me imaginatively into the full panoply of these subtle characters of both good and evil struggling with one another, which is you know, very constant, as Paul would say, about our lives. So I agree with that. I think, that's, I think it would be helpful... Maybe that's a confession I should make. You know, for 15 years, I didn't want to use the word beauty because I couldn't find out what it meant. So now I am able to talk about that which is beautiful as an elemental, uh, harmonious um, consonance. I think it's the way Thomas talks about it, you know, matter that pleases as something that is not defining of art. It's simply a facet of artwork which indeed has a metaphorical character to it sure mm-hmm. if if i could jump in here um please i do i do want to say that that calvin and myself we do we do have uh points on which we we agree and right. i think this is where a number of the things that that calvin drew out in his essay as uh, as proper uses of art very christian uses of art and so on we can agree on that, and and we've and, and we've some right. some of those points of agreement have been have been touched on already. I think this is one area where another agreement of ours uh, is worth noting that I did not have an opportunity to draw out there. I'd said earlier w- that I was reluctant to use the term Platonist, and that's why I use right. the term Augustinian, and right. and I think the reason is precisely that when yeah. I yeah. Uh, when I look at some of the differences between Platonism and Christianity, some of them have to do with the overt emphasis on archetypal things in Platonism at the expense of the particulars, which I don't see happening in Christianity. Uh, So one example in terms of beauty, one thing that I think is fascinating is if you contrast um, Platonic literature or Greek literature on beauty uh, in reference to femininity, for example, there's an emphasis on these very archetypal ideas of specific curves, specific shapes, um, and in this sense, it becomes an abstracted beauty. Um, whereas, uh, whereas in or or if it becomes particular, it's a reference to a particular ar- archetype. This, you know, um, you know, Aphrodite is beautiful or something like that. Uh, but in in Hebrew literature, there's an emphasis on the particulars. Your, you know teeth are like this, you know, your breasts are like this, whatever it may be, uh, the sort of thing you, saw, you see in the Song of Sil- Solomon, and that emphasis on the particular is a, a, is a stark contrast, and I think this um, also comes out in terms of the treatment of history, the fact that the Platonists don't really have a, a strong place for the historical uh, over against the archetypal ideas, whereas Augustine then draws in um, in the decrees regarding history, and I think this is where another one of these things like the cross that's being brought in is another one of these big gaps between the overtly Platonic and the more Augustinian traditional Christian approach where we look at it and we say, well, the drama of what's happened in terms of history and what's been accomplished in, in the cross, those historical particulars and what's been accomplished there and 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 that is what actually informs. If Grunewald's right. was just grotesque and we had no concept of redemption or the cross and what it means, then it would be unlikely that it would affect us the way it does. It's actually the theology underneath it that informs it and then is is mirrored in it that ends up uh, playing a significant part. And so this is one of these areas where I think that's par- that's one of the things that I get tripped up to in terms of defining beauty because I'm very sympathetic to 
Platonist notions of beauty, um, but uh, I think Christianity tends to have divergences and unique features that make it difficult to just adopt the Platonic approach for right. sale. And I, and I think that's that's one of the points Hart gets to in his book is this idea that any universal is only accessible through a, a particular, and beauty as some abstract quality is very elusive because we can only ever point to, you know, that beauty or whatever. Um, and, you know, God himself reveals to us as a, as a particular Jew in a particular part of Palestine. Um, now, uh, speaking of particulars, let's, uh, let's end with this. What in particular, uh, understanding there's a thousand more things that could be said about what art is and what in particular, Professor Sierveld, uh, could a Christian do to be a good steward of art? The the average uh, listener to the podcast today, in their car or on a walk or in their kitchen right now, uh, what can they do in particular that they can begin to walk as a good steward of art? Well, uh, it depends if you're talking about potential artists or art public, so to speak. Um, I think everybody has the task indeed to be imaginative. So when you have a next birthday party for your child, what you have to do is plan a surprise. Because for me, underneath art making is what I call aesthetic life, which is being imaginative. And that's even more important as a watershed for art making that indeed the house that you live in you know, has things on the wall and children's drawings up on the fridge. And that when you hold a, a party or hold a, a gathering for a meal, there would be some, some kind of surprise. Not, you, not that you call it a magician, but that you somehow plan something that is imaginative, a surprise. So everybody can do that who is not even an, uh, you know, an art maker. And those who are potential amateur, becoming professional, because most professionals start as amateur art artists, you have to indeed, as, as Professor Jacob says, Nathan says, you know, develop the skill that goes into this. And in my impression would, or my suggestion would be is then when you are drawing, for example, draw those people who are around you. Draw a friend. Draw your family's faces. Learn to do something that indeed will give joy to someone who is near to you. And then uh, in the long range... I was hoping we were going to talk yet maybe about the art prize, but maybe you won't, you won't get oh, to go, that. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was, I was wondering indeed what Nathan thinks about the art prize, you see, and then for, uh, for I those have of my you, ideas about For those of you listening who may not be familiar with the art prize, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, last year uh, was the inaugural art prize, which, as I understand it, is the biggest purse of any art competition in the world, perhaps. That's what and the website says. That, that's right. And basically what happens is downtown Grand Rapids becomes one large art gallery where people and artists come together to place uh, works of art on display for the public to uh, walk around for a couple weeks and vote with their iPhones or cell phones or whatever and uh, on, on which uh, pieces they think are the most deserving of the quarter million dollar uh, I believe that's the first prize is a quarter million dollars that's right, that's right. Yeah. so Nathan uh, what, what, what is it uh, what, do you, what do you think of the art prize um, well I would I would like to give my assessment of that in, in answer to the, the, the same sure. question that you just Very leveled good. stewardship of um, but uh, I would say beginning with the question of how uh, an aspiring artist or, or 
a person who is an artist already, uh, is to be a good steward of art. Um, I'd, I'd walk it through similarly, chronologically, the way I do in, in the article, where um, the, f the first step is, is, first of all, making sure that there's no sort of gross moral violations going on, but then there's also the, the cultivation of personal virtue and, and character and those sorts of things that specifically, the uh, specifically Christian element of, of that. Um, but then there's also the the emphasis on on the cultivation of certain skill sets. Now that that's not restrictive, uh, as as I make the point in the article. It's not restrictive to just painting or drawing. Uh, a, a cook can be an artist. There's a certain skill set being cultivated there, and so this emphasis on the cultivation of excellence in whatever the discipline is, um, and and doing it as though you were doing it as uh, doing it for Christ. You know, the same way. It, uh, Paul exhorts slaves to you know to work for their master as though they were working for Christ. So you should do whatever you're doing. In this case, cultivating these uh, these these uh, techniques and so on. But then there's also the teleological question, and I think the teleological question again is important, and it's going to depend largely on what it is. Um, if I'm doing if I'm using my artwork for a specific graphic purpose, say. Um, you know whether it's Kellogg's boxes or something Kellogg's boxes or web design or something like that there's going to be a specific skill set and teleology at work there in which case I'm going to have to figure out the best way to arrive there the best way to steward relative to what the purpose of this is um, without at the same time doing damage to these other obligations I have to God and to my fellow man and to myself as a human being who's supposed to be cultivating virtue and arriving in my own teleology um, but then if we're talking about more the fine arts sphere, uh, then that starts to raise a very important question, and this is what gets us to the art prize question. Uh, I have a concern that, I th that when I look at the, the role of fine arts historically, I think there, there was a greater understanding of teleology in, in m more ancient and even medieval times, uh, where the artwork, well, let's say in Eastern Orthodoxy, the artwork ser served a specific uh, liturgical purpose. Um, it served a confessional purpose with regard to Christology. It served a liturgical purpose, which was also part of its rigidity. Uh, it's, you don't alter it just like you don't alter Christo Chrysostom's uh, liturgy. Um, in the Western uh, side of things, it did serve a confessional and liturgical role, but then there was also uh, greater flexibility with regard to that because it wasn't playing exactly the same role. Right. Um, in more secular contexts, uh, it might be linked with displaying the glory of the empire or the glory of the emperor or in pagan or Grand Rapids. I'm sorry? In Grand Rapids. <laughs> in Grand Rapids. Well, you know, yeah, there's, there's the question of the glory of the empire being... <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, that's what I... I mean, if I may jump in, is that all right, David? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. In other words, for me, uh, it's, it's a mixed thing you need to define. I think that's what uh, Nathan is trying to say. And for me, the fact that it intended to serve the neighbors imaginatively, turn the whole city into something, to me, that's very good. And also that they wanted to dress up the city of Grand Rapids. That's good. I mean, site-specific art that is public art, not just art plunked down in public, but really right. art for public. To me, that's why I was glad that five of the winners, you know, were indeed like the mural and the, and the right. thing on top of the, of the bridge so that people could go there. But I think, I'm afraid, 
maybe it was compromised by the capitalist market economy. You know, we've got to compete to be best. We give the biggest money art prize. You know, we've got to be sell us to the public, so it's got to be sensational, so that the lottery quality to it, if you will, to me is uneconomical. It's unstewardly. I mean, just imagine if they've given a quarter of a million to 35 neighborhoods for a $7,000 prize. Then I think that would be more stewardly than to give, you know, one fellow a quarter of a million and then pass out some of the other prizes. That's, so that's a suggestion from outside. Right. I, I, I'm inclined to think that there there are questions of stewardship with regard to the art prize. And um, the one you raise is, is certainly one. Um, the one I was I was sort of driving at here with the teleology question is also just a general question with regard to the art world in general today. I, I get concerned that a, a lot of... I, I almost get the impression that it's either art with a very practical purpose, such as Webb's design or Kellogg's boxes, or it's art for art's sake. And I fear that there's been this uh, a loss of this very important sphere of high, um, refined, fine art that serves a teleological purpose, even though it's not immediately tangible in the sense that yeah, but it I would really sells hope boxes that. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and 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 in this sense, I'm not sure that this art prize, in addition to the other stewardship concerns that might be raised, I'm I I have concerns that this doesn't in fact advance us any closer to recapturing that, which I think is the bigger need in the art world right now. Yeah, I would demur. Yeah, I would demur at making the teleological liturgical requirement for it to come into the role of being redemptive. I mean, uh, Rokmacher once said to me that he would really like to show Billy Graham around the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and he was going to bring him up to one of those still-life paintings by Willem Kleizone, which just has, you know, these wonderful pewter jugs and turned-over glass things and fruit with uh, maybe uh, a bug in the flowers, and tell him, now, that's the most Christian painting. Nothing liturgical, but it's really showing the glory of this world and the, and the, and the things that are in it. So that's why I'm worried about that liturgical, teleological, uh, as it were, focus that art has to be before it really can be serving and redemptive. Let me ask a conversation. Well, let me, let me ask just one, in, in, yeah. as far as it can be quick, uh, and this can go for either of you. Um, one of the things we, we can't go into a whole lot is this idea of, of, of the glory of the Lord. Professor Jacobs, you bring up the idea of the lesser glory of the temple. What glory is, what it has to do with art, how it, uh, how it informs our understanding of what we are to do as artists. But um, if you look at something like, um, let's say, the, the Christian music industry, that seems to be, to me, a good example of a, of a place of a bit of confusion on the part of some artists in that they, on one hand, uh, want to maintain a certain... We'll say liturgical. That's not a precise word, but uh, but you know this is for the glory of God, so to speak. It has this sort of end to to praise God, whereas on the other hand, it doesn't have any sort of actual liturgical purpose and operates much more in, as sort of cultural artifacts, but not completely working in the Christian or in the music culture. So what you get is this odd hybrid of something that feels like as though it should be grounded religiously, but on the other hand doesn't really serve that purpose and actually operates more along the lines of, of some sub-market in the Christian, or in the music industry. The reason I bring this up is, is uh, Professor Sierveld, your point of, you know, the importance of, of liturgy and, and the church and our understanding of, of art, and 
uh, and and even things like how uh, even market economy uh, plays into our understanding of art, as in the art prize here. I, I'm wondering if one of you can respond to this idea of of, of um, uh, Professor Sheerfeld. You brought it up, so Professor Jacob, Jacobs, maybe you can respond here. This liturgical, what what is what is the church or liturgy? How does that inform what it is we're to understand about art? Right. Well, I would I would want to offer one one clarification here. Uh, I'm not suggesting that something has to be liturgical in order to be Christian art or to be art generally. Um, but my concern is that there was, I mean, there's, Calvin uh, Professor Sierveld has yeah. mentioned the com the community a number of times. And right. this is where, in the liturgical context, one of the things that I think uh, is present that has been lost is this idea of artists coming together, and not just a general coming together in the sense of we're doing an art show or we're doing an art prize, but a coming together for a specific purpose that is much beyond themselves and really is for the betterment of that specific liturgical community, uh, even if it's not for the betterment of that community in some very tangible um, sort of fiscal way or something like that. It, it serves a, a, a benefit in terms of the, the elevation in worship, in terms of the confessional norms and so on. Uh, and so in terms of the purpose, but, but getting back to that question of spe specific liturgical functions, historically, um, at least in Eastern Orthodoxy, it's been had to do with affirmations of the Incarnation. And so this is a specific, you know, I, I, uh, I kind of dual, you know, stance that it, it, it that there's a confessional element to what's present here. Uh, it served a practical purpose in terms of being text for the illiterate. Uh, this is something on which uh, people are educated. Now, that might not be as much of a problem in our context, but certainly, at least in the realm of children, this is, is an ongoing function. Um, and then also in terms of just creating an environment that sets it apart as sacred, knowing that you've stepped out of, this is one of the things that I think the cathedrals do so well. I've stepped out of the world into a different place. This is the communication of the transcendent, that somehow I am behaving differently. This is part of the communicating the already not yet. The not yet is all too evident to us in our daily lives sometimes. And this is where the the already might become a little more immediate in these contexts. So those are a few ways in which the liturgical function of art might come out. Very good. Well, gentlemen, um, if if it were up to me, I'd uh, I'd just cancel the rest of my calendar this afternoon and, and keep this going. There are um, not only in discussing what art is and how we might do it and give examples of how we might do it, not only exploring ideas of the stewardship of art and how that may be affected by its role in communities or in the liturgy or how matters of art, uh, the stewardship of art, uh, come together with matters of economic stewardship in events such as the art price here. That's a whole, that'd be a whole podcast unto itself, a very uh, edifying one, I'm convinced. Uh, whatever it is, uh, this does at the very least underscore, I think, the importance to have meaningful uh, discussion about those elements that we uh, that do, we do steward, um, and that it's important that those of us who are uh, very interested in uh, being good stewards of the things God has given us, how we do it prayerfully and discerningly. Uh, so I would like to uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Professor uh, Nathan Jacobs and Professor Calvin Sierfeld. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, too, Nathan. And I would like to uh, thank the Acton Institute for, uh, for, for having me here to moderate this great discussion and for uh, ha having a place to have it. 
Um, I have found that there's a, a, a great uh, richness of wisdom on these matters, something to ponder that I ponder with my own students as my own work as the artist. Uh, so I encourage all of you to uh, continue to look into this. Please pick up a copy of the Journal of Markets Morality. And uh, if you want to hear uh, even other pontifications uh, by way of shameless plug, you can visit www.artvoc.com, A-R-T-V-O-C.com. That's uh, my own ramblings on uh, these matters. Speaking of pontificating, I would like to end by adding uh, one last voice to our conversation today, uh, to our discussion of the stewardship of the arts, uh, a voice that represents a tradition that's not been formally uh, represented in our conversation, and that's the voice of a dramatist and actor and poet who incidentally later, I don't know, became a pope or something, uh, Pope John Paul uh, of blessed memory. Uh, he uh, wrote a wonderful letter in 1999 to artists, and I'd like to end with that. He says, Human beings, in a certain sense, are unknown to themselves. Jesus Christ not only reveals God, but fully reveals man to man. In Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself. All believers are called to bear witness to this. But it is up to you, men and women who have given your lives to art, to declare with all the wealth of your ingenuity that in Christ the world is redeemed. The human person is redeemed. The human body is redeemed. And the whole creation, which, according to St. Paul, awaits impatiently the revelation of the children of God, is redeemed. The creation awaits the revelation of the children of God also through art and in art. This is your task. Humanity, in every age and even today, looks to works of art to shed light upon its path and its destiny. Thanks for being with us on Radio Free Acton.